So first of all, you just got back from Europe, right? You were in Europe last week? Yes, I was in Europe last week. Uh, last show was uh, Ramsgate. <laughs> <laughs> the exotic Ramsgate. Yes, it was a very sweet show, and a bunch of young guys started a club. That's fantastic. But it's right next door to a bait and tackle. <laughs> So I, I hung on to the bait and tackle and talked uh, fish with the guys there. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so you're on tour, obviously, because you have a brand new album out called Goodbye to Language that was done with Rocco De Luca, right? So you're on tour with him, or is this a solo tour? I'll be doing a West Coast tour with Rocco De Luca in June, but the one we're speaking of, the European tour, I went out solo. So I did uh, some steel guitar and then a lot of electro, I call it, whereby I bring some of my studio gear to the stage and do sampling and spinning and lots of crazy stuff that um, everybody's going nuts about. And uh, with a nice light show to go with it with projected films. So it's back to my psychedelic years. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Hmm. So I want to go back in time if I can. As a young lad growing up in England, I live in America now, I sort of, without knowing this, stumbled into your universe. And let me explain that. So there were certain albums that I was into as a, as a teenager, and they all had this one thing in common, and that was the fact that you basically produced them, or co-produced them, uh, Brian Eno. And the albums that you produced in the 80s, that when I was a teenager that I started listening to, all feel as if they're from the same kind of universe, the Daniel Lanois universe, and I say that as a compliment, in the fact that the production work it had this sort of sense of richness and this depth to it and this sense of mystery that they were fragments from a larger, deeper universe and that sort of really pulled me in. And so I've got three songs I want to start off with, if I can, if you don't mind talking about three specific songs. Yeah, that sounds good, man. Let's, which ones are you thinking? So three songs that I'm just going to pick out of nowhere that sort of changed my life. So let's start with um, In Your Eyes, Peter Gabriel So. From what I understand, you essentially spent a year in England in 1985 with Peter working on the So album. You essentially lived over there for a year, is that right? Yes, I worked in the West Country with, with Peter Gabriel um, for a year, almost to the day, <laughs> which apparently was, was fast for Peter. <laughs> I was regarded to be quick at producing a record for him. Can you believe it? A year. <laughs> All of the songs on that record, on the So record, were built... Um, up from beginnings that Peter had. So we brought rhythm section in last. We had a, a system whereby we would um, huddle up and get a really nice feeling going on the uh, foundation of the songs. Once we got somewhere and we had a good vocal, then we were able to bring in the rhythm section after, which is would be considered, as they say in Ireland, arse about face. <laughs> mm. So usually you lay down the drums and the bass and you build up from there. So that was a, an interesting record that way because we cut everything to metronomic times. Peter had some pretty good rhythm box beats going at the time. And we thought, okay, well, that's good enough to get the arrangements in shape for the songs and then we'll put the, the fellows on after. So In Your Eyes was no exception. We built that one up from uh, a beginning that Peter had. It just kind of started developing its personality and the more we worked on it the better the melodies got Peter had a fascination with uh, a Senegalese singer by the name of Yusu Ndor and as a cherry on the cake uh, Yusu came in quite late in the production of that and put on uh, quite a striking vocal on the outro 
It goes something like, Sibip Mambatibi, which I think means, in Senegalese, means uh, in your eyes. <laughs> right. And um, there's, there's something really beautiful and exotic, and the more we added to that, the more exotic it got. And it's got a lot of spirit in it, and I guess it, it's partly the sound of a thousand churches Peter's talking about. Mm. Anyhow, we just whittled away, and there was an advantage to being in the West Country because we were we made the record uh, in a barn, really, in a, a cattle barn, and so there were no distractions. You know, it's not as if we were going into town or nightclubbing or anything like that. So there was something nice about the the concentration that we were afforded by being isolated in the West Country. But it's a it's a song that always I always felt um, a good vibe. Uh, from and, and so there it is. We just kept pushing the, the button, uh, the churchy button, and we got to this place that I think is some people think special. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It stood the test of time as well. Okay, let's move on to the second song from another album that you were very instrumental in, Fallen Angel, Robbie Robertson. And I believe Peter Gable was actually on that backing vocals as well, wasn't he, that particular song? Yes, I was making a record with Robbie Robertson at the same time as I was working with Peter and you too for that matter. So we, we did a little travel trip. Robbie and I packed up and went to Dublin for a couple of tracks and then stopped in to see Peter. So uh, Peter did make a contribution to that track. It's a bit of a sad song in the sense that it's, it's about his buddy who committed suicide. Uh, I think uh, Wayne, that's Richard Manuel, is it? Yeah, oh. Richard Manuel. And so was, uh, that happened in the middle of our making that record. And so Robbie was obviously affected by by that. And so that's what the, the, the Fallen Angel title yeah. is from. But there's a really great bass part on there that Tony Levin played. He was jamming out a bass part and I isolated a particular figure that I liked. And I asked him to build a part around that figure. And then uh, Tony was mystified that I asked him to double it on an electric guitar. He says, I'm not a guitar player. I said, don't worry. I'll block out the last, the top two strings and just treat the bottom four strings like you would play the bass. <laughs> and so it has this it's almost a reggae bottom end, but it's, a, it's an old Nashville trick where you, you double up the bass part with a secondary instrument, a piano. Perhaps, but in our case, we did it with a Telecaster. And it just started having this... Uh, groove that was touching and had a lot of feeling in it and I remember Robbie coming down once I had laid down the track for it he said he said Daniel I will never doubt you again (laughs) 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 uh, he felt that there was a transformation that was had there and because the song as it was was really just chords on a a piano that Robbie had written and so I was able to take it to to a rhythmic place that uh, resonated with him the third album I'm going to pick and the song, the album's The Joshua Tree, and then the song that I'm going to pick from that is One Tree Hill. And, I mean, the whole album, you could pick any song from that, really. That particular song, One Tree Hill, the song was about Greg Cowell, right, who worked for the band and then was killed in July 1986 in a motorcycle accident. So the story goes with that song, Bono did one take, only sang it once. Is that true? Uh, I think that's true. It's a little vague in my mind because that's a long time ago and I didn't work on that song on the re... Because, you know, we did some mixes for the reissue of the record and uh, 
Eno did uh, One Tree Hill, I believe, and, and I remixed uh, Running to Stand Still. But you're right about Greg, um, unfortunately, had a motorcycle accident and we lost him. And um, I guess the One Tree Hill, you know, the, that he was he was such a, a lovely, sweet man and an outstanding figure in Dublin because I, I think other than Bill Linnett, he was the only other black guy in the country. <laughs> he was a magnificent man and stood out. In, in the crowd there in Dublin. But there were a lot of one-takes on the Joshua Tree vocally. I could speak a little more about um, Running to Stand Still because that's the one I just remixed. And um, if you don't mind segueing into that one. No, not at all. Running to Stand Still is uh, one of the most intimate songs in the entire album, isn't it? It's also a sad story because uh, one of Bono's mates, uh, someone he grew up with, was pretty whacked out on drugs and jumped off the roof of the uh, of the Seven Towers at the Ballygowan Flats, I think if I've got the name right. And um, he thought he could fly, and he didn't. And he hit the ground, and that was it. And so that's what the song is about. And that's another live vocal. Uh, and it's obviously an emotional song for Bono, and, and it really comes through in, in the singing. But when folks out there have a chance to listen to the remix, we were able to provide a new emotional dimension to the to the vocal with the, this new vocal, uh, instrumental arrangement that, especially in the second verse, if you, when you listen to it, uh, it has a beautiful, uh, complex arrangement, much like um, Bernard Herrmann might have done in the 50s. I'm a fan of Bernard Herrmann, so for me to to visit Bernard's world and apply it to the second verse in Running to Stand Still was a was a very special moment. And I got a nice compliment from Bono that he could barely hold back the tears when he heard the remix. Is that remix on the 30th anniversary edition of the album that's being released? That's correct, yes. Daniel, how do you feel about that? I mean, 30 years on paper seems like a long time, but it almost seems just a few years ago, really, that the album was released and... Uh, it was obviously massive, but can you believe 30 years? And when you look back now, 30 years later, what are your thoughts about the album? Well, it's uh, obviously everybody's evolved and my skills are different now than they were then. But um, we always come back to those early days uh, and see them as days of concentration and commitment. We were very deep into the work then and telephones, uh, cell phones didn't exist. And, and so we, we were a very concentrated group. And I think it's, that's part of what we're hearing in that body of work that is quite touching and uninterrupted and not really un, uninterrupted by not only by telephone, but by there no other wave of music made its way into that. We weren't thinking that we should be catching up to anything else. Um, so we maximized the record with talent that was available in the room. And I believe that shines through, through that body of work. Two years later, you would release your debut album, Akadi. By then, Daniel, I discovered who you were in terms of you were the, the mastermind behind this sound, this lush, rich, depth, organic sound in terms of the way in which you were able to get the music, to produce the music, uh, and the sort of the rich reverbs that you were able to get as well. And so I got this album, and it was a bit like this best-kept secret, right? This album that, uh, when you put it on immediately, and I remember getting it on vinyl, uh, putting needle down still water, thinking, this is unbelievable. And then, of course, it goes into the maker. For me, it was this incredible manifestation of the pure, true essence 
of the man who was behind those albums, the remarkable string of albums that you produced in the 80s. When you look back upon that album, are there things about it that you wish you would have changed, or is it, in your mind, perfect as is? Well, when I listen back to Acadie now, of course, it sounds very innocent and something, uh, I think it was a pretty accurate snapshot of where I was at uh, with my sonics and uh, with also how I was looking at the world. And so that made its way into the lyric. But what's interesting about that record to me now is it how Canadian it sounds. The imageries are Canadian. And uh, maybe I had to leave Canada to be able to see Canada properly. And so... Most of that was written in New Orleans. Some of it was written in Dublin. And I think the uh, I was so inspired by having worked with some of the greats of, of that of that time. I guess I I felt ready that um, I could put something out myself and, and have it be something true. I think that's what we like in in records. You know, from the past, we we listen to them and think, oh, there's there's kind of a, a charm that we were affected by because people did the best with what they had to work with. And I think my record, Acadie, has that in it with the limitations um, that I was operating by. I did as much as I could and could have been done 20 other kind of ways, but I did it that way. The fact that I sang about my own experiences it meant that the songs uh, rang true. And uh, I think they still do today. So there it is. <laughs> You talk about, in early interviews, you talked about how the song The Makers, almost a bit of a patchwork song because various elements were recorded in different locations, as you mentioned, Dublin and New Orleans. How much of these songs were you sort of writing or developing even when you were working with other artists at the time? I always wrote lyrics when I was working with other people. For example, when I worked uh, in the West Country with Peter Gabriel, I lived on the premises. It was a little bell tower in the farmhouse, and I lived up there with a, a little coal-burning fireplace. I was dreaming a lot in those days, and and so if I woke up from a dream, I made a point of writing down a page in my book, and that might happen a couple, three times on a night, and then through the rest of the week. And then Sunday was my day to myself, and I looked at those scribblings of um, stream of consciousness and I chose the best lines and tried to siphon them down to something reasonable on a Sunday so I was very disciplined that way I wasn't necessarily working on my own music with instruments but certainly I was thinking about about songs and subject matters and then obviously that continued because four years later for the beautiful Winona came out and you've continued in fact your solo career has been remarkable in the fact that you are just extremely adventurous and almost in a sort of no guts, no glory kind of way and that you've explored a lot of different, mostly instrumental music. Am I correct in saying that? That you've, In fact, how do we view your solo career? Considering the fact that you've had a hand in some of the biggest selling albums of, of all time and you've won 11 Grammy Awards, what has your solo career been in terms of, is, is it a response to that in terms of, of your sort of, more commercial mainstream efforts? I'd say the instrumental records are somewhat of a reaction to pop charts. I mean, everybody loves a hit and it helps touring and, you know, it's, it brings wealth and, and uh, comforts of life. But the more I make music now, the, the more I feel a responsibility to it rather than it working for me. Um, I am still interested in my image and how I perceive, but 
my ego has diminished considerably and I'm happy for the work to live on and speak on my behalf. So, uh, you know, a record, for example, an instrumental record that I made a few years ago called Belladonna. To this day, it's, I get compliments on that record and it's some, some people's favorite because it takes them on a journey. And I think that's part of the responsibility of music is to have it be that it, it allows an inner feeling that somebody might have boxed in for that feeling to come out for them to feel that they can find out something about themselves more so than about me. <laughs> so if we can wake up uh, a dormant emotion in a listener, then I think that's a good job done. When you have been in the studio either recording music yourself as a musician, because you're an accomplished musician as well as a producer, has there been a time when you've had an incredibly moving emotional musical experience that has sort of indelibly burned itself in your memory? I've had some very moving emotional experiences uh, when enlightenment has come my way. And that's, that hasn't been necessarily by playing an instrument. Um, and it's happened maybe, uh, I try not to talk about it too much, but sure. it's happened maybe four or five times in my life where, you know, as a teenager, for example, I, I felt at a, at a very specific moment that something told me that this was going to be my journey. And so there was a, a calling that came my way as a kid and I appreciated it did. When I was working in Mexico for a while. I was taking a long drive uh, from Tijuana all the way down to the south of the Baja and uh, driving in the night something came my way at that time as well. Almost a, uh, I had to pull over. I, was, I pulled the car over and I walked into the desert and uh, it was another one of those moments that, of reassurance that um, kind of a, an addition to the calling. So I've had a handful of moments like that that have provided reassurance that I was doing the right thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. You know, anyone who's involved with the arts, they say that, uh, uh, you know, if you go deep into the arts, that there's something premonitional that um, exists within. And... Uh, Oftentimes, artists lead the way to trends and you know, shifting of cultural monsoons and so on. So it's a very real part of mysticism that I will embrace. Even though I'm not a very mystical person, I believe that we are driven by something we don't fully understand. That does sound almost a religious there, spiritual, doesn't it, in a way? Yeah, yes. It's, uh, well, it's, I think it's based on faith, which is... Uh, something that is outside of religion, if we believe that that some possibility exists for us out there, and as unknown as it might be, to uh, drum up the courage to go someplace where the unknown is, I think is is part of what we do as artists. And it's sometimes it's tough to be courageous because it's easier to be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I, I think. That's my point as well. That your entire career. If you look at it, it's um, a profile in musical courage in a way because um, you, you've done it all and you've been experimental and um, much like college radio in a way because college radio is the world I come from. College radio has always played music as well that's been out there. Um, I've always loved radio. I came up on radio and uh, it had, of course, something very mysterious about it and there were some very smart disc jockeys in the uh, Toronto area where I grew up uh, as a teenager and they were playing all kind of far out uh, selections and 
couple of them were practically beat poets, and so they, they'd go on. Um, they were probably high on something or other, but they really took the listeners on a journey. And, um, I mean, I've spoken with Bob Dylan about this because he came up in a similar way where, you know, television didn't exist when he was a kid, so you had to imagine what people looked like. And there weren't all the uh, music magazines and so on, so, you'd, you know, if you listen to Al Jolson singing Swanee, you'd have to imagine what he looked like. <laughs> But then we, we uh, in my first recording studio, we actually got a radio transmitter installed in the basement of the studio, and um, we used it to transmit to the car. So we got to ride around, take the car, drive around the block, and check out a mix right on the radio. <laughs> it had maybe a one-mile radius or something like that as, as its power, but it was a lot of fun. And um, I still love radio to this day, but most of all, I... I appreciate surprises on radio, and I, I guess the the brave hearts of surprises are always uh, in college radio stations, and or, or at least the the lesser commercial stations where the programming was not determined. Programming was in the hands of the disc jockey, and I still like that idea today. Yeah, uh, I didn't know that you essentially started your own pirate radio station. That's uh, that's one for the books. <laughs> yes, exactly. But we weren't broadcasting, you know, to, to the public. We were just using it as a tool to listen to our mixes on radio to make sure that they were good before we pressed them. Uh, just a couple more questions, if that's okay. I do want to, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because when I told people I was going to be interviewing you, they, they wanted me to check out the veracity of this story. And that is the recording of Actung Baby with you 2 in, in 1991. And the story goes, and I know you've heard this, obviously, because you were, you were there, but that the band was really having trouble coming together in the studio. And in fact, there was even rumours that the band would even split, or it was pretty bad, the divisions in the studio. But it was, you were instrumental in bringing the band together and helping the Edge come up with a chord sequence or encouraging him to come up with a chord sequence that would become the song One. And as he was playing the guitar, it was then the breakthrough moment that the band needed. Is that accurate to say that happened? What happened from your experience? Well, uh talk about song one um, of course I was there for the construction of that and yes the edge had a, some nice, nice chord sequences on the go and was trying to decide whether it should go this way and that way and I think you know, there was a moment of suggestion for me that maybe an amalgamation of the two and given that I'm musical and I can play the guitar myself I was able to make a suggestion that made sense to the arrangement and, and that um, I think that stringing together helped the song along nicely and then a little further out down the line of the making of that song, um, Edge was out of town, and uh, Bono said, Danny, would you play a little something? Because Bono likes to have a, a fresh ingredient that might spark a vocal to rise up out of him. <laughs> and I played this little hammer-on part, you know, and I didn't think a lot of it at the time, but it seemed to uh, live on and made the final mix. So that's that's the little part that's on the intro. But to be honest with you, I've heard the story before about how the band was on the verge of breaking up, and I don't remember any of that. Uh, it just seems like a lot of mythology to me. You know, it was we were working hard, but we we always work hard and always trying a hundred different ideas until we found something that was special. And that record was no different than any of the others. You know, we we just kept at it, and some nice things were had out of Berlin where we were for a couple of months. I thought that place sounded great, and Larry was playing terrific at that time, and 
we really egged them on. And, and as you can really hear in the record, it's a, it's a rock and rhythm section on that record. As wild and as far out as the toppings might be, I'm quite proud of the fact that the that Larry and Adam are anchored in rock and roll. And um, we, that might not have happened if we had not gone to Berlin. And I don't really remember the struggles. I just remember a lot of hard work. And uh, it's one of the rec- one of the U2 records that I worked on that I'm most proud of. Yeah. So this interview's been recorded for Vinylthon, and uh, vinyl, as you know, has really had a bit of a uh, renaissance, a reemergence. Talk to me about your your love of vinyl and how you feel about the reemergence or the resurgence of the vinyl phenomenon. Yeah, sure, man. Uh, I have a vinyl collection. I didn't collect it myself. I bought it from Bill Bentley, who used to uh, work for Warner Brothers as publicist. We're still friends to this day. And um, Bill can't pick all the records for this collection, so it's mostly a, a southern uh, Texas and southern USA collection of jazz and blues. And So I still have that collection now. And I also have a nice extensive collection of 45s here in Toronto where I'm speaking to you from and there's just something special about the I mean people talk about the sound you know, they'll always sound a little bit scratchy because <laughs> the vinyl always had surface noise but what it does have that I think we appreciate it has a moving part if you have a stylus moving up and down according to the cut in the vinyl that's being amplified and so that the moving part that we have in our head is, is the eardrum. <laughs> so it's, we like moving parts as listeners, as operators of eardrums. <laughs> if you have a stylus, then needs uh, maybe a nice valve amplifier and then hits a nice speaker cabinet. Those are all moving parts, and the, the valves are glowing. And there's something exciting about the, the ebb and flow, the push and pull, or the, the micro-negotiations that happen within the system so if a, a loud sound happens, it pushes the other sounds out of the way for a split second, and then the yeah. other sounds come back. So it's, it's a constant push and pull that I think we like to hear as humans. But aside from all that, isn't it nice to take on an album, read something on the back, enjoy the photographs, kick back a little bit, and and forget about the mad, fast world that we've built? But I think the our, our bohemian tendencies are still with us. We still like to congregate with friends. So having a couple of hours of, of vinyl listening might suit the times very well. Daniel, would it be incorrect, uh, maybe even wrong of me to say or suggest that with the analog production techniques that you employed during those seminal albums, that maybe the best way to listen to those albums is on vinyl? Um, I think what's, what's significant about... Uh, what you just asked is we were making diff- uh, records very differently back then. And the limitations that we operated by dictated a certain process. In these digital times, it's very easy to try something and then uh, we have what is called undo. So you, you, you do a punch in and then you say, okay, well, that didn't really work out. Undo. We never had undo back in the day. So it forced us to make the right decisions um, because, you know, you'd have an adrenaline rush every time you did a punch-in. To make a, a photographic analogy from, from the photo world, the motor drive on a on a digital camera is a bit of a machine gun. Back in the day, you might have um, roll film or 35 millimeter where 
you didn't couldn't snap hundreds of pictures. So you took a little more time to make sure that everything was right. So the as I listened to my work from the analog days, I appreciate that first of all the sounds were really good, and but we made some nice decisions that we lived by. So we weren't able to backtrack and say I made a mistake. You couldn't make a mistake. And by not being able to make a mistake, you wouldn't make mistakes. <laughs> so it's an interesting subject matter to to address. So I think we hear the sound of limitation, commitment on those old records. And I'm not sure that the old records sound best on an old medium like vinyl. I'm not sure about that. I think new records also sound good on vinyl. But only time will tell. You know, current records, when we listen to them in a decade's time, we'll be able to make a assessment of how they sound and so on. But, uh, hey, man, we're all supporters of vinyl. It's great. I like the smell of it. Uh, <laughs> I like that there's little shops you can go in and talk to somebody behind the desk and, you know, just uh, any, anything that, that promotes uh, knowledge and appreciation of excellence uh, is fun by me. Okay, as it is Vinylthon, so then the question is going to be this. Uh, we've got this little game that we're playing. It's called Vinyl on Fire, and the scenario is as follows, that your house is on fire, assuming that's where you keep your record collection. You only have time to save three records from the fire, from your personal collection. What three records would you save and why? Okay. Hey, Wayne Lorenz. Okay, light the fire. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Okay, I think I can reach for that Stan Getz Bossa Nova. Yeah, we got we got Stan Getz Bossa Nova. Good. Oh, I, I couldn't do it without Jimi Hendrix. Oh, hang on. Okay, uh, okay, Electric Ladyland. That's fine. Yeah, man. Great. Uh, what about some What about some German stuff? You know? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, man Machine, uh, Kraftwerk. <laughs> there we go. Kraftwerk, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and what was the first one? Stan Getz. Bossa Nova. Bossa Nova. Those would be your three. And can I ask why those would be your three? They were the closest ones to the... I've been getting burnt when I ran back into the room to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I had to leave out the other thousand favorites. <laughs> well, Stan Getz is a very romantic record, Bossa Nova. And um, that's worked well for me on several romantic evenings. And then I'm, I'm such a fan of Jimi Hendrix. And so Electric Ladyland has... Has that that beautiful guitar playing and a sense of experimentation and adventure mm. appeals to me. And then um, Man Machine, Craftwork. Uh, I think that's got the model on it. Is it What's interesting about Craftwork is you hear a lot of early hip hop in, in those records. I think, um, believe it or not, that the Germans would have been part of the spine of building uh, American rhythmic music. I like the, the robotic and the the machine-like uh, tonality of those records, of the Kraftwerk records, and that's one of them. <laughs> what I think is unique about this, and very exciting about this um, question, is that you get very unique answers from everyone you ask. Um, so that's great. Thank you for sharing those selections. Final question then, um, really, I mean, I could ask many more, but final question is this, is that, Looking at what you've done and what you've achieved, and 11 Grammys is, is just phenomenal. What is it that keeps you going, and what is it that you feel you still have left to achieve? What keeps me going is the challenge of music and coming upon yet one more 
fragment of magic that supplies me with fuel to, to carry on and go to other dimensions. I'm uh, currently working with a Canadian fellow who operates under the name Venetian Snares. We're doing some collaborative work and I'm very excited about. As a very unlikely pairing as I'm playing steel guitar and he is a master of technology. So some quite striking results are had from that. So to, to go to some place that I've never gone to before appeals to me. My old friend, Steel Guitar, and uh, what I like about it is uh, no matter what happens with technology, it remains the same. So it's, uh, it's an old friend that I need to pay respect to, and my playing hopefully keeps getting better and better, and I don't feel like I'm just regurgitating um, the old riffs. You know, I, I find I make new discoveries within that instrument all the time. So that's it, man. The And then life itself is never a dull moment with what's happening around the world. So in terms of global inspirations and what might be happening with the uh, uh, rise and fall of cultures and, and the madness of what's happening these days, but the beauty as well. So I'm just thankful that I wake up in the morning and I'm excited about music as I have always been. So may it never go away. <laughs>